Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, March 15th, 2023, the 784th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So a note before we get started on Friday afternoon of this week, I will be sitting down for an in-person interview with the great Garrett Ziegler of Marco Polo. And we are going to be streaming that interview live on Badlands and hopefully Twitter, maybe some other platforms. I'm going to blast it out as many places as I can. For paid subscribers, you may have seen 
a post on my Substack last night. I am extending the offer, the opportunity to all of the paid subscribers to submit questions for that interview with Garrett. If there's something you want to ask about the Hunter Biden laptop scenario, something about the Biden presidency, something about Garrett's work, and of course, any questions about the report, please just put those in the comments to that Substack post, and I'll go through those with Garrett during the interview. And of course, I'm going to be keeping an eye on rumble rants and whatever else. I'll try to get to as many questions as possible. Garrett actually wants to do that open format. So please, by all means, send your questions in. And speaking of the Hunter Biden saga and the House Oversight Committee's work to look into all of this, here's James Comer announcing what seems to be a new phase in the effort. So, Congressman, you're going to get your hands on these suspicious wire transfers from Yellen, but you're also making progress where else? Well, we have bank records. We have bank records from one of the 13 banks in hand that uh, were used by the Biden family members in these uh, business schemes. So these bank records prove that the Bidens did receive money uh, through a shell company from uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, this is the first link. Uh, hopefully within the next 48 hours, we'll have more bank records from another bank. And we're just going to keep following the money. We, we know from our sources that have come in, the whistleblowers, where the money trails are. And of course, the Democrats have denied it. The White House has denied it. There's no denying it now with the bank records. And now Treasury's forced to have to give us the suspicious activity reports because they acted all along like there was nothing there. Well, I can assure you there's something there and everyone knows it now. From the bank records that you've seen so far, what can you tell us? What, what was the money for exactly? That's a great question. And that would be a great question for the media to ask the Bidens. Uh, they got money from people directly linked with the Chinese Communist Party for what? You know, for years we've heard, well, it was because of a business deal. It was an energy deal. I don't see any energy deal here. All I see are transactions from China to a, a an LLC, which was essentially a pass-through, and then deposits into the Biden account from that LLC. It doesn't show any business activity. And on where it says in the wire for the purpose, that's left blank. Hmm. So, so we don't know what that money was for, but I don't see any business activity here. It looks like it was influence peddling. And if so, that's illegal. That's called lobbying. That's, you have to be a registered foreign agent. And, and, you know, we don't see any evidence of that. So obviously we're not all the way there yet, but we're beginning to see the suspicious activity reports come in from the banks. These have been denied for the last couple of years when Comer talks about knowing where the money trails lead and where to find what they need along those trails. A lot of that stuff is coming from Marco Polo. These SARs are confirming illegal activity that was identified from the laptop. So I want to get into a bit more of this banking stuff because there is a deeper story underneath what the media has been telling us, as there always is. And I've mostly been going with that top mainstream narrative, just so that everybody's on the same page about what's happening. But now let's get into some of the underlying stuff. This is from American Greatness today. Failed banks previously lobbied to loosen banking regulations. And you might remember 
that what we've been hearing for the last five or six days as this situation has evolved is that all of this is Donald Trump's fault because Donald Trump messed up the regulations. And if he hadn't done that, oh, everything would have been just fine. At least two of the banks that collapsed over the weekend had previously been two of the biggest advocates for easing regulatory rules on the banking industry. According to The Hill, both Silicon Valley Bank and the New York-based Signature Bank had lobbied for a 2018 bill called the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act, which ultimately became law. The law made the banks and other banks of their size and caliber exempt from stringent stress testing and capital requirements that had previously been implemented in the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act. The bill passed through Congress with bipartisan support and was signed into law by President Donald Trump. It dictated that banks worth $250 billion or less in assets were not systemically important and thus made them immune from strict oversight reviews conducted by the Federal Reserve. And we talked about this yesterday with that article from the Financial Times, where that number would be to consider a bank systemically important and how we would determine the need to bail it out. Both SVB and Signature Bank's lobbyists insisted that neither of them were a systemic risk to the nation's economy or the banking industry. However, upon the collapse of both banks on Sunday, federal regulators who intervened to protect their customers claimed that the collapses did indeed represent systemic threats to the economy. Back in 2015, SVB's CEO Greg Becker testified before the U.S. Senate claiming that his bank does not present systemic risks. These new burdens and the related compliance costs and necessary management time and other human resources are significant, Becker said to Congress, and will require us to divert resources and attention from making loans to small and growing businesses that are the job creation engines of our country, even though our risk profile would not change. It was Becker himself who suggested that Congress raise the threshold from $50 billion or less in assets to $250 billion. SVB ultimately had around $209 billion in assets at the time of its collapse, thus making it the second largest bank failure in American history, only behind the 2008 crash and subsequent recession. Now, we were told that SVB had to be bailed out so that we could avoid systemic contagion. And this sort of systemic contagion is kind of a problem brought about by the fact that we centralize so many things and that we interconnect so many things in terms of this global landscape that we are being led into. If you create a system where everything affects everything else, then in some sense, you're actually presenting a systemic risk rather than letting the individual entities sink or swim. When you then have a number of these individual entities all implementing the social agenda of that same global regime, you're introducing even riskier behavior because the decisions are no longer being made based on sound business practices and what is actually going to create value and profit for the individual entity. This is from Fox News yesterday. Silicon Valley Bank donated millions to Black Lives Matter related groups, social justice causes, records show. Silicon Valley Bank, which collapsed on Friday after a classic bank run. Oh, it's just a classic bank run. That's what happened, just like it's always happened. 
They donated more than $73 million to groups related to the Black Lives Matter movement, online records show. A database from the conservative Claremont Institute shows the bank donated around $73,450,000 to the BLM movement and other social justice-related causes. As first reported by The Federalist, the now-defunct bank pledged in the summer of 2020 when the nation was gripped by racial unrest after the police custody death of George Floyd to increase its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. And you have to love Fox News's careful description of the George Floyd incident. The nation was gripped by racial unrest after the police custody death of George Floyd. Are we not calling it murder any longer? Mainstream media? What a step up you've made. A report from August 2020 highlighted the fact that around two thirds of the bank's workforce met the diversity criteria. Another report that year touted SVB's achievements in supporting minorities. In an introductory letter to the report, CEO Greg Becker said SVB touted employee matching programs that focused on, quote, pandemic response, social justice, sustainability and supporting women, black and Latinx, Latinx emerging talent, and other underrepresented groups. Fox News has reached out to BLM for comment. So we have 1,500 climate change-related startups. We have $5 billion invested in ESG-related investments. We have $73, $74 million heading off to Black Lives Matter. And we have very gracious gifts to Gavin Newsom and his wife. But that's not all. Well, my friend, Just Human and some others have pointed out that SVB actually has links to the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. This is from ABC News, July 28th, 2020. Virgin Islands government subpoenas multiple banks for Jeffrey Epstein's financial records. The government of the U.S. Virgin Islands is upping the ante in its quest to pierce the veil of secrecy that cloaked the life and wealth of financier Jeffrey Epstein the deceased sex offender who accrued a fortune of more than $650 million under mysterious circumstances. At least 10 financial institutions, including Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citibank, have been issued subpoenas in recent weeks from the office of U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George, according to court filings reviewed by ABC News. The subpoenas seek account records, transaction details, and communications concerning Epstein, his estate, and more than 30 corporations, trusts, and nonprofit entities connected to him. The move comes as lawyers for Epstein's estate are locked in an increasingly acrimonious duel with George, who filed a civil forfeiture lawsuit against the estate in January, five months after Epstein died while in a federal jail in New York. The complaint alleges that Epstein constructed a network of companies and individuals to enable and conceal his alleged sex trafficking of girls and young women to Little St. James, his luxurious private island resort off the east coast of St. Thomas. The article goes on with some more of the background and some more of the details about this part of the story, but I'm going to jump down to the end. Other banks and brokerage firms that were issued subpoenas, according to the court records, include Fidelity Investments, Charles Schwab, Bank Lumi, Wells Fargo, Northern Trust, and Silicon Valley Bank. Spokespersons for Fidelity, Charles Schwab, and Lumi did not respond to requests for comment. Wells Fargo declined to comment. 
Silicon Valley Bank declined to comment on pending litigation, but a spokesperson said that, quote, to the best of our knowledge, Silicon Valley Bank has not had and currently does not have any business dealings with the individual or entities named in the subpoena. We may find out at some point whether or not they're lying about that. This is Maria Teresa Kumar on MSNBC. I want to start very quickly with banking crisis. Maria Teresa, you were just saying you were surprised you haven't seen Powell Powell yelling out more forcefully already. Jay Powell, well, I, Federal Reserve Chair. If you actually you look at which bank this is, this is the Silicon Valley Bank. This is a startup bank. This is also oftentimes the Democratic ATM bank of all those investors. And so the fact that you don't have these individuals, the investors that invest in the yeah. people. So the fact that you don't have someone actually talking from the administration and being so forceful, I do think that we're, what we're going to see are Republicans saying, oh, you shouldn't bail this one out. Mm. And it's going to be, I think, very much on, along political lines. What- So that was obviously a couple of days ago. But the really interesting part of that to me is that she says this is kind of the ATM bank for the Democrats. So look at how much of the regime's scheme SVB happens to be involved with so many levels. And Just Human summed it up on Monday on Twitter like this. For your consideration, SVB is massively invested in China, has joint ventures with them. They were recently subpoenaed in the U.S. Virgin Islands Epstein case. They are extremely woke. They're the choice bank of the failing tech oligarchs and connected to the Russian swamp as well. So SVB is in the Silicon Valley, Chinese and Russian swamps. Silvergate was crypto crooked. Signature Bank had Barney Frank on the board and is connected to the FTX scandal. The draining of the Russian swamp, which is happening right now under the guise of task force klepto capture and the decoupling from China, which has been happening since Trump's first term, plus the interest rates going up, plus Moody's downgrading SVB, set SVB and a number of other banks upon the pyre. Then Trump ally Peter Thiel withdrew everything from SVB and announced it. That lit the blaze. We are watching a controlled burn. And he may well be correct about that. Let's look at some of the other banks that are having problems. This is from January 12th, 2021. So the week after the very violent insurrection, Deutsche Bank and Signature Bank cut future ties with Trump, citing capital riots. Signature Bank, very interesting. In the wake of the deadly riots on Capitol Hill last week, Deutsche Bank and Signature Bank have said they are cutting future ties with President Donald Trump. That could leave the president on the hook for millions of dollars when several large loans he has personally guaranteed come due in the next two years. If Trump were unable to pay back the full amount, the bank could seize assets he used to secure the loan, which could include his golf courses, hotels and other properties. Oh, very scary for Donald Trump. Has it happened? No. Deutsche Bank, where the president has two personally guaranteed mortgages for a total of $340 million, is refraining from further business with Trump, according to a person familiar with the matter. The loans come due in 2023 and 2024. A company spokesman declined to comment, but the company's head of U.S. operations, Christiana Riley, wrote on LinkedIn last week that the riots were, quote, a dark day for America and our democracy. Violence has no place in our society, and the scenes that we witnessed are a shame on the whole nation, she posted. We are proud of our Constitution and stand by those who seek to uphold it to ensure that the will of the people is upheld and a peaceful transition of power takes place. That's about as regime as you can get for a statement from a financial institution. 
The German bank has weathered a rash of negative publicity after a series of investigations connected to Trump's finances and was allegedly looking for a way to conclude its relationship with the president. In December, two of Trump's personal bankers at Deutsche Bank, Rosemary Vreblich and Dominic Scalzi, responsible for managing hundreds of millions extended to him over the years, resigned. The reasons for the resignations were not clear. Signature Bank said it was closing two personal accounts in which the president held about $5 million. Signature Bank began the process to close President Trump's personal accounts. Company spokesperson Susan Turkle said in a statement, Signature Bank pledges it will not do business in the future with any members of Congress who voted to disregard the Electoral College. And again, that is awfully regime for a financial institution weighing in on politics, refusing to do business with anyone in Congress who was doing their job by objecting to the electoral votes from states where the elections were obvious frauds, which may as well have been all the states. The bank also posted a statement on its website calling for Trump to resign. We have never before commented on any political matter and hope to never do so again, the statement read. To witness a rioter sitting in the presiding chair of the U.S. Senate and our elected representatives being told to seek cover under their seats is appalling and an insult to the republic. Very, very bold. And you might think back to that time and in the run up to the election and all of the corporate influence that was being leveraged in order to get Biden elected. There was actually, if you recall, a letter written by hundreds of companies, of individuals, prominent individuals, public figures. Leonardo DiCaprio is on it. Lynn Rothschild is on it. It was called We Stand for Democracy. And the statement issued was a government of the people by the people, a beautifully American ideal but a reality denied to many for much of this nation's history. As Americans, we know that in our democracy, we should not expect to agree on everything. However, regardless of our political affiliations, we believe the very foundation of our electoral process rests on the ability of each of us to cast our ballots for the candidates of our choice. For American democracy to work for any of us, we must ensure the right to vote for all of us. We should feel a responsibility to defend the right to vote and to oppose any discriminatory legislation or measures that restrict or prevent any eligible voter from having an equal and fair opportunity to cast a ballot. Voting is the lifeblood of our democracy, and we call upon all Americans to join us in taking a nonpartisan stand for this most basic and fundamental right of all Americans. So, again, you remember at this time, the push was to convince everybody that they had to vote against Donald Trump and to support the narrative that we were going to have massive turnout, which was what was required to actually get Joe Biden over the finish line. Millions and millions of unaccounted for votes flooded into the process with a narrative to support a way that that could have possibly happened in real life, even though there's absolutely no way that could have possibly happened in real life. And it turns out that one of the signatories to this statement is none other than Silicon Valley Bank CEO Greg Becker. So we have these financial institutions that are getting specifically involved in politics on the side of the regime. All the various elements of the regime agenda that they were supporting individually, the climate stuff, the ESG stuff, 
Black Lives Matter. They were the Democrat ATM bank. They were tied to Jeffrey Epstein. There are ties among these other banks to FTX. And they were all coordinating on the get Trump effort, the stop Trump effort and the harm Trump effort. And none of that seems to be working out too well for them. And there are indications that the next bank in the firing line may be Credit Suisse. A hat tip to Anon Famous for pointing this article out. This is from The Guardian on the 20th of February, 2022. Revealed Credit Suisse leak unmasks criminals, fraudsters and corrupt politicians. And this is a long article, a study of the situation. I recommend it if you want to check it out. I'm going to go through a little bit of it. A massive leak from one of the world's biggest private banks, Credit Suisse, has exposed the hidden wealth of clients involved in torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption, and other serious crimes. Details of accounts linked to 30,000 Credit Suisse clients all over the world are contained in the leak, which unmasks the beneficiaries of more than 100 billion Swiss francs held in one of Switzerland's best-known financial institutions. The leaks point to widespread failures of due diligence by Credit Suisse, despite repeated pledges over decades to weed out dubious clients and illicit funds. The Guardian is part of a consortium of media outlets given exclusive access to the data. We can reveal how Credit Suisse repeatedly either opened or maintained bank accounts for a panoramic array of high-risk clients across the world. They include a human trafficker in the Philippines, a Hong Kong stock exchange boss jailed for bribery, a billionaire who ordered the murder of his Lebanese pop star girlfriend and executives who looted Venezuela's state oil company, as well as corrupt politicians from Egypt to Ukraine. One Vatican owned account in the data was used to spend 350 million euros in an allegedly fraudulent investment in London property, which is at the center of an ongoing criminal trial of several defendants, including a cardinal. The huge trove of banking data was leaked by an anonymous whistleblower to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. I believe that Swiss banking secrecy laws are immoral, the whistleblower source said in a statement. The pretext of protecting financial privacy is merely a fig leaf covering the shameful role of Swiss banks as collaborators of tax evaders. Credit Suisse said that Switzerland's strict banking secrecy laws prevented it from commenting on claims relating to individual clients, thus proving the comment by that whistleblower. Credit Suisse strongly rejects the allegations and inferences about the bank's purported business practices, the bank said in a statement, arguing that the matters uncovered by reporters are based on, quote, selective information taken out of context, resulting in tendentious interpretations of the bank's business conduct. The bank also said the allegations were largely historical, in some instances dating back to a time when, quote, laws, practices and expectations of financial institutions were very different from where they are now. So you see, none of it was a problem back then. It's only a problem now because people have made it a problem now. While some accounts in the data were open as far back as the 1940s, more than two thirds were open since 2000. Many of those were still open well into the last decade and a portion remain open today. So with that as background, we come to this today from Barron's Credit Suisse's troubles are taking bank stocks and others down with it. Problems at Switzerland's second biggest lender are causing stocks around the world to falter and reigniting fears for the banking sector. 
On Wednesday, Credit Suisse's top shareholder said in a Bloomberg interview that it wouldn't invest additional money in the Swiss bank. Saudi National Bank chairman Amar al Kuderi told the media outlet that taking a stake of more than 10% in Credit Suisse would trigger regulatory complications. And this is from yesterday in Forbes. Another Credit Suisse crisis. Bank finds material weaknesses in its financial reporting. Credit Suisse on Tuesday disclosed it found quote-unquote material weaknesses in its financial reporting processes for 2021 and 2022 that could have resulted in misstatements of financial results, marking the latest blow to the crisis-ridden bank as it released its delayed 2022 annual report. The weaknesses include the lack of an effective risk assessment to identify misstatements in its financial reporting and a lack of effective oversight. So it sounds like they've lied on their forms and they know they're going to get caught. So they're warning people that there may have been misstatements due to a lack of effective oversight. The bank said its management is developing a remediation plan to address the problem, but noted its annual report fairly presents its consolidated financial condition for the two years. The lender also disclosed that Price Waterhouse Coopers, which audited its financial statement for 2022, also issued, quote, an adverse opinion on the bank's internal control over financial reporting. Credit Suisse was forced to delay the release of its annual report by a week after it received a last minute call from the Securities and Exchange Commission with questions about its cash flow statements from 2019 and 2020, which have now been resolved. The bank, which in February reported its biggest annual loss since the 2008 financial crisis, also disclosed that its customer withdrawals, which surged in the early part of the fourth quarter last year, have, quote, stabilized to much lower levels, but have, quote, not yet reversed. In addition to the disclosure, the crisis-stricken investment bank also said its chair, Axel Lehman, has agreed to forego a $1.65 million annual payment usually meant for top board members. The investment bank's stocks were down more than 4% in morning trading after the annual report was released. Credit Suisse shares, along with other banking stocks, has been hit by a global rout triggered by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last week. The Swiss lender's turmoil, however, predates the SVB collapse and its stock value has plummeted more than 80 percent since March 2021. Credit Suisse has been at the center of a litany of scandals over the past few years. The investment bank reported a one point seven two billion dollar loss in 2021 due to the bankruptcy of fund partner Greensill Capital and took another five point five billion dollar hit from the collapse of hedge fund Archegos Capital. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, the lender came under scrutiny of the U.S. House Oversight Committee over its handling of information about assets linked to Russian oligarchs. In July, the bank announced it was replacing its CEO and undertaking a comprehensive strategic review amid mounting losses. Social media rumors in October about Credit Suisse's financial health triggered some panic in the markets, along with a wave of withdrawals from customers. The company reported losses of $8 billion in 2022. So we were told that we had to bail out Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks. We had to protect the depositors. Otherwise, there would be a contagion that harms the global financial system. 
And we are all supposed to accept that that is an unimaginable threat to our own lives because it's going to hurt the richest people. And they're the ones who employ everybody in quotes. And so it's going to hurt a bunch of normal people, too. This is something they did not care about at all while they were shutting down everyone's businesses in 2020. And we can't just lose sight of that. All of this is being justified based on how the little guy is going to be hurt. David Sachs, the tech bro who's like Elon's guy, I mentioned him the other day. He was upset because he thought people were delighting in the idea that these rich Silicon Valley entrepreneurs might lose their money and warned that the shoe might be on the other foot someday. But as I said on Monday, the shoe has already been on the other foot. He was back out there today highlighting a small school that had its funds with Silicon Valley Bank. And they wrote to David Sachs to thank him for his advocacy on behalf of the depositors in getting that bailout, because without it, they would have been screwed. And so he shows us, look, here's the little guy. Here's the little guy that all of us big, important people saved. And that's why it was all worth it, because without us doing what we did, that little guy would have failed. And then all of you would have felt really bad for that little guy. So what really happened was we were protecting ourselves to protect you. But again, they didn't care about protecting the little guy throughout 2020 while they were busy arguing about the nuances of an entirely fictional situation revolving around the very deadly pandemic. And just in case you're triggered by fictional situations, I'm talking about do lockdowns work? The answer is no. You don't need to have a long and detailed discussion about that. A nuanced discussion about that fiction. Masks don't work. The idea that we've spent three years arguing about the details of why masks don't work is utterly insane. It just means that the conversation has been distracted from the important things. Small businesses were going under left and right in 2020, and none of these people cared. None of these people said, we have to stop this insane mitigation strategy that doesn't constitute mitigation in any way. Because all of these small businesses are being destroyed, but we do have to bail out banks in order to prevent small businesses from being destroyed. So we were told we could stop the contagion if we bailed out SVB. And so they did that over the weekend. And it turns out the contagion is still spreading. And the banks the contagion is spreading to are all very regime connected banks, also totally opposed to populist agendas here in America and around the world. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? As my friend Kyle, just human, noted, Peter Thiel was the spark that lit this fire. And I have to say, there's some reason to believe that this might be that controlled burn or controlled demolition that people have been anticipating for quite a long time. The situation is pretty murky. We're going to have to see how it develops, but it does seem like there's some pattern emerging here. When you start paying attention to exactly what these banks were involved with and how all of that connects. Now, switching subjects completely without a segue, you may have heard yesterday that a U.S. drone was downed over the Black Sea, and we are told that was done by the Russians. This is the Associated Press today. What's known and not about U.S. drone Russian jet encounter? When a Russian jet fighter collided 
with a large U.S. surveillance drone over the Black Sea, it was a rare but serious incident that triggered a U.S. diplomatic protest and raised concerns about the possibility Russia could recover sensitive technology. U.S. and Russian officials had conflicting accounts of the collision Tuesday between the MQ-9 Reaper drone and the Russian Su-27 fighter jet. Each side blamed the other. A Pentagon spokesman raised the possibility that the Defense Department could eventually declassify and release video it has of the collision. And I guess we'll wait to see that. Russian authorities said Wednesday that they will try to recover the fragments of the drone. But National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told CNN that the Reaper crashed into very deep water and he was not sure whether a recovery was possible. Kind of sounds like that sky circle or those sky circles, I should say. Whatever happened to those sky circles? I thought they blew it up over the water so that they wouldn't harm anyone in the debris field, and then they could recover it all and figure out exactly what was going on with that whole thing. I guess we're never going to find out where that process is. A look at what's known and what's uncertain about the incident. This is the drone incident. What the U.S. says happened. The Pentagon and U.S. European Command said that two Russian Su-27 aircraft dumped fuel on the MQ-9, which was conducting a routine surveillance mission over the Black Sea in international airspace. They said the Russian jets flew around and in front of the drone several times for 30 to 40 minutes, and then one of the Russian aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9, causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters. Air Force General James Hecker, commander of the U.S. Air Forces Europe and Africa, said that the Russian jet's actions, quote, nearly caused both aircraft to crash. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said the collision likely also damaged the Russian fighter jet, but the Su-27 was able to land. He would not say where it landed. The Pentagon said the drone was well clear of any Ukrainian territory, but did not provide details. A U.S. defense official said it was operating west of Crimea over the Black Sea. The official spoke on condition of anonymity to provide mission details. It's not clear if the collision was an accident or intentional, but both sides agree the Russian aircraft were trying to intercept the drone. It's also not really clear if there actually was a collision. The Russian Defense Ministry said the U.S. drone was flying near the Russian border and intruded in an area that was declared off limits by Russian authorities. It said that the Russian military scrambled fighters to intercept the U.S. drone. It claimed that, quote, as a result of a sharp maneuver, the U.S. drone went into uncontrollable flight with a loss of altitude and collided with the water surface. So that is an entirely different story. And considering what we've heard from the Defense Department and people like John Kirby about the conflict in Ukraine, about the sky circles and basically every other issue they ever communicate to the public about. You got to kind of assume that they're lying as unfortunate as that is. There's just no reason to believe these people about anything at this point. And not only is there concern about the illegitimate regime constantly lying about things like this, the Nord Stream pipeline again, for instance, it once again seems like they have absolutely no idea what's going on like they have no access to real intelligence. 
And I understand that that is a conspiracy theory. It just keeps making sense in all of these situations. Russia has declared broad areas near Crimea off limits to flights, as they would because Crimea is theirs. And of course, we have the same dishonest and uninformed U.S. officials telling us that this craft was not over Russian territory. Obviously, we don't know if that's true or not, but for people who pretend that Crimea is not Russian territory and for people who lie all the time and make mistakes constantly, it's hard to see this as some sort of unprovoked aggression by the Russians. Ever since the 2014 annexation of Crimea and long before Russia invaded Ukraine last year, Moscow has charged that U.S. surveillance planes were flying too close to its borders while ignoring the notices issued by Russia. So there is a 10-year history of this problem, which is made even worse while the illegitimate regime and the defense apparatus, to whatever extent they have control over that, are supporting the Ukrainian war effort with money, with armament, and with intelligence. Was this surveillance drone helping Ukrainians with targeting Russian assets? It very well could have been. And if that's the case, what are we supposed to expect the Russians to do? Most sane people don't want an all-out kinetic war with Russia, but the illegitimate regime do not represent most sane people. They just represent the global regime. Nations routinely operate in international airspace and waters, and no country can claim limits on territory outside of its own border. The ministry said the Russian aircraft were scrambled to intercept the drone, but didn't use their weapons and, quote, didn't come into contact with it. The MQ-9 Reaper is a large unmanned Air Force aircraft that is remotely operated by a two-person team. It includes a ground control station and satellite equipment and has a 66-foot wingspan. The team includes a rated pilot who is responsible for flying the aircraft and an enlisted aircrew member who is charged with operating the sensors and guiding weapons. Used routinely during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars for surveillance and airstrikes, the Reaper can either be armed or unarmed. It can carry up to eight laser-guided missiles, including Hellfire missiles and other sophisticated munitions, and can loiter over targets for about 24 hours. It is about 36 feet long, 12 feet high, and weighs about 4,900 pounds. It can fly at an altitude of up to 50,000 feet and has a range of about 1,400 nautical miles. The Reaper, which first began operating in 2007, replaced the Air Force's smaller Predator drones. Each Reaper costs about $32 million. The collision triggered a diplomatic protest. The U.S. State Department summoned Russian Ambassador Anatoly Antonov to a meeting Tuesday with Karen Donfried, the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. We're engaging directly with the Russians, again at senior levels, to convey our strong objections to this unsafe, unprofessional intercept, which caused the downing of the unmanned U.S. aircraft, said State Department spokesman Ned Price. Kirby said the U.S. will be, quote, expressing our concerns over this unsafe and unprofessional intercept. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had not talked to his Russian counterpart regarding the incident. Ryder said, why isn't Lloyd Austin? Talking to his Russian counterpart. Why hasn't Joe Biden talked to Vladimir Putin at all throughout this entire time? 
It's like Vladimir Putin doesn't even think Joe Biden is the real president of the United States. And of course, we are supposed to take the state propaganda media outlets explanation of that situation that it's just Joe Biden's toughness. He's not going to talk to Russia until Russia surrenders, except Russia's not going to surrender. And Joe Biden doesn't seem to have the option to talk to Vladimir Putin. This is not the first time Russian aircraft have flown so close to U.S. aircraft in the Black Sea. It's prompted the Pentagon to publicly condemn the incident for putting the crews at risk. In 2020, Russian jets crossed in front of a B-52 bomber that was flying over the Black Sea and flew as close as 100 feet in front of the bomber's nose, causing turbulence. Russian jets have also buzzed U.S. warships during exercises in the Black Sea. In 2021, Russian warplanes buzzed the USS Donald Cook, a Navy destroyer, which had been taking part in a major exercise. Until Russia's invasion last year of Ukraine, U.S. warships more frequently deployed to the Black Sea in response to Russia's 2014 attack on Crimea. And it's funny how they always have to call everything an attack to make it sound like what the U.S. is doing is defensive. Why in the world do we have ships in the Black Sea constantly? Why do we have all of this military presence on Russia's doorstep? Imagine that was other countries threatening us, saying they were protecting Canada or protecting Mexico. Imagine that China did that. And I am all for a very, very strong U.S. military. I think peace through strength is the right way to go. But we certainly do not need to be the global police any longer. This is absolutely nuts. For the most part, however, military intercepts, either in the air or at sea, are routine and have happened a number of times with Russian aircraft in the Pacific, particularly in the north. Just last month, U.S. fighter jets intercepted two Russian Tu-95 bombers in international airspace off Alaska's coast and escorted them for 12 minutes, according to the Pentagon. And Russian aircraft have done similar missions and also buzzed U.S. Navy ships in the Pacific. In most of the cases, the intercepts are deemed safe and professional. It's not clear if the Russian pilots were willing to get closer to the Reaper or dump fuel on it because they knew it was unmanned, and therefore there was no risk to an American pilot or crew. The deliberate downing of a manned aircraft, injuring or killing crew members, could be considered an act of war, <laughs> not like blowing up critical infrastructure like the Nord Stream pipelines. And Cash Patel was on War Room yesterday discussing this incident. Yeah, let's just uh, uh, sort of set the landscape of what an MQ-9 Reaper is. This is like the F-35 of drones. It's like the 747 jumbo jet commercial airliner version. This is not something that fits in like your, uh, you know, little caddy bag when you go traveling. <laughs> this is a behemoth. And we're talking about an MQ-9 Reaper. Was it armed? Was it unarmed? We use these. This is public information. MQ-9 Reapers are used to execute complicated drone strikes, kinetic strikes around the world. Was it collecting intelligence? Did it have a SIGINT probe on it? How many tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars were wasted when by the downing of this aircraft? And Steve, let's just pause there. The downing of a United States drone by the Russian military. Why is President Joe Biden not front and center at the White House at a podium demanding Putin explain what happened? And if it wasn't an absolute mistake, then there better be retribution. This is the failure in leadership from our commander in chief. And the media will barely cover it 
But the fact, just think about this. What if an MQ-9 Reaper drone went down during took out? It would be headline news for a month, as it should be. There needs to be an investigation. People need to remind themselves of the seriousness of this. Or, and oh, by the way. First, I think this is the key. Yeah. By the way, they would have started an impeachment trial if Trump hadn't hit, hit something back. You know, he's too soft on Putin. But Trump wouldn't have had the Reaper up, you know, over the Black Sea to, to get it. This is the problem. And this is what the accelerationists and the, the people are pushing. What they want to do is push some sort of conflict so you can have an Article 5 situation. And next thing you know, you got guys shooting at each other. And I'm not saying the Russian pilots weren't cowboys here, right? It's very little information yeah, come yeah. out, but it looks like you know they've been say, they've said already they're dangerous and reckless. Of course, that's the Pentagon saying it. But what are your thoughts about we just have too many assets over there? Uh, you know, it's not supposed to be our war. It's not supposed to be our proxy war. Right. Are you concerned about we got so many assets over there right now? Naval assets, air assets. We've got we're actually doing the targeting for them. We now know we're doing AI targeting for them, sir. So what it is, Steve, it's the uh, too cute by a half scenario. We've got DOD contractors on the ground in Ukraine. So we can say we don't have American conventional forces on the ground in Ukraine. And when you shift that to aerial assets, it's the same thing. What they're saying is we have unmanned aerial vehicles and assets both in the air and sea. And when they get shot down, it's OK, no big deal. There wasn't an American in it. But of course, the worst catastrophe if there was any American involved. But I think this administration is using that excuse or that justification to say we're not really there when we're doubling down. And I agree with you. I don't think we should be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to fly these vehicles that cost hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to no, collect intelligence. This, for this is a major. So that's the situation. And Cash makes a very insightful point. Where is the media in covering this? Where is Joe Biden in making a statement? Is this Joe Biden's fault? Is this a huge, disastrous error on the part of Joe Biden and the military leadership? Are we being accidentally walked into direct involvement in a kinetic war against Russia? We seem to be coming awfully close. Vladimir Putin had this to say yesterday. This is Reuters. Putin says Germany remains occupied. Russian President Vladimir Putin said Germany's response to the explosion on North Sea pipelines showed that the country remained occupied and unable to act independently decades after its surrender at the end of World War II. Putin, interviewed on Russian television, also said European leaders had been browbeaten into losing their sense of sovereignty and independence. Western countries, including Germany, have reacted cautiously to investigations into the blasts, which hit Russia's Nord Stream gas pipelines last year, saying they believe they were a deliberate act, but declining to say who they think was responsible. The matter is that European politicians have said themselves publicly that after World War II, Germany was never a fully sovereign state. Russian news agencies quoted Putin as telling State Russia One TV. The Soviet Union at one point withdrew its forces and ended what amounted to an occupation of the country. But that, as is well known, was not the case with the Americans. They continued to occupy Germany. Putin told the interviewer that the Nord Stream blasts were carried out on a state level and dismissed as complete nonsense suggestions that an autonomous pro-Ukraine group was responsible. 
The pipelines were intended to bring Russian gas to Germany, though since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine a year ago, Berlin has taken steps to reduce its reliance on Russian hydrocarbons as if they were given a choice. Leaders in Berlin have been careful about apportioning blame for the explosions, with Defense Minister Boris Pistorius saying last week the blasts could have been a, quote, false flag operation to blame Ukraine. And that's kind of what Vladimir Putin is saying. Germany has been occupied by the United States and by the regime since World War II. And this isn't some outlandish statement. We know we have military all over the world. We're just told that it exists to protect American interests and our allies from Russian or other aggression. It's pretty clear that's not how it looks to people like Vladimir Putin. And again, it really is worth considering the perspective from the other side. What does that look like if you're not just accepting the United States narrative on what it is? Well, that does look like a foreign occupation that has existed there for decades. And when we see Germany unable to name who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, protecting the regime and even claiming that it might be a false flag to frame Ukraine, you might think that Putin has a point. These European nations and their leaders are doing what the regime tells them to do. And that is part of what's prolonging this conflict. Now, Tucker Carlson on his show last week announced that they had sent queries to the potential GOP presidential candidates and, of course, Donald Trump about what they would do regarding Ukraine. And he went through the answers to these questions on the show on Monday night. Former President Donald Trump's answers to the Ukraine questionnaire. Trump said, like inflation and numerous other self-inflicted wounds and mistakes made over the past two years, Russia would definitely not have raided and attacked Ukraine if I was your president. In fact, for four years, they didn't attack, nor did they have any intention of doing so as long as I was in charge. And that is a very, very interesting statement on Trump's part. This would not have happened if Trump was in charge. The fact that the regime stole the election in the United States made another path necessary for Putin to dismantle deep state assets in Ukraine. But the sad fact is that due to a new lack of respect for the U.S. caused at least partially by our incompetently handled pullout from Afghanistan and a very poor choice of words by Biden in explaining U.S. requests and intentions. Biden's first statement was that Russia could have some of Ukraine. No problem. And you might remember that Biden said that not in so many words, but essentially said that they might be willing to tolerate a minor incursion. In a press conference he gave last year in the lead up to the Russian invasion. But Trump goes on. The bloody and expensive assault began and continues to this day. That is all history. But how does it end? And it must end now. Start by telling Europe that they must pay at least equal to what the United States is paying to help Ukraine. They must also pay us retroactively the difference. At a staggering $125 billion, we are paying four to five times more, and this fight is far more important for Europe than it is for the U.S. Next, tell Ukraine that there will be little more money coming from us unless Russia continues to prosecute the war. The president must meet with each side, then both sides together, and quickly work out a deal. 
This can be easily done if conducted by the right president. Both sides are weary and ready to make a deal. The meeting should start immediately. There is no time to spare. The death and destruction must end now. Properly executed, this terrible and tragic war, a war that never should have started in the first place, will come to a speedy end. God bless America. Tucker's next question is opposing Russia in Ukraine, a vital American strategic interest. Trump says no, but it is for Europe, not for the United States. That's why Europe should be paying far more than we are, or at least equal. What specifically is our objective in Ukraine and how will we know that we've achieved it? Our objective in Ukraine is to help and secure Europe, but Europe isn't helping itself. They are relying on the United States to largely do it for them. That is very unfair to us, especially since Europe takes advantage of us on trade and other things. What is the limit of funding and materiel you would be willing to send to the government of Ukraine? Trump says that would strongly depend on my meeting with President Putin and Russia. Russia would have never attacked Ukraine if I were president, not even a small chance. It would have never happened if I were president, but it has. I would have to see what direction Russia is headed. I want them to stop and they will, depending on the one that delivers the message. But with everything said, Europe must pay. The United States has spent much more than Europe, and that is not fair, just or equitable. If I were president, that horrible war would end in 24 hours or less. It can be done and it must be done now. Should the United States support regime change in Russia? Trump says no. We should support regime change in the United States, and that's far more important. The Biden administration are the ones who got us into this mess. And you got to say, he's right about that. Given that Russia's economy and currency are stronger than before the war, do you believe that U.S. sanctions have been effective? No, they have not been effective. Just the opposite. They drove Russia, China and Iran into an unthinkable situation. Do you believe the United States faces the risk of nuclear war with Russia? It depends on who the president of the United States is. At the moment, with Biden as president, absolutely yes. He says and does all the wrong things at the wrong time. And naturally, Trump is correct about this. Trump is not some typical political candidate that we should look at through the traditional political lens. He is a quote unquote former president who has access to a wealth of information that the neocon establishment and candidates like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley simply do not have access to. He also has relationships with all of the key players. He knows what their long-term strategies are. He has talked to them about all of these things, and he understands what's going on at a level none of these other candidates could possibly reach. And certainly the establishment media figures have absolutely no clue relative to what Donald Trump already knows. And too many people in the GOP establishment and the corporate media conveniently forget this all the time while they're playing their little Trump is ineffective or Trump is dumb or Trump's an egomaniac game. Donald Trump is indisputably the best person in the world to be handling this situation. He's not just out there talking nonsense, and he certainly doesn't need the advice of GOP establishment Twitter characters like Jesse Kelly and Mike Cernovich and the rest of the moronic DeSantis simps. Ron DeSantis did answer Tucker's Ukraine questionnaire, and he answered it this way. While the U.S. has many vital 
national interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party. Becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. The Biden administration's virtual blank check funding of this conflict for, quote, as long as it takes, without any defined objectives or accountability, distracts from our country's most pressing challenges. Without question, peace should be the objective. The U.S. should not provide assistance that could require the deployment of American troops or enable Ukraine to engage in offensive operations beyond its borders. F-16s and long-range missiles should therefore be off the table. These moves would risk explicitly drawing the United States into the conflict and drawing us closer to a hot war between the world's two largest nuclear powers. That risk is unacceptable. A policy of regime change in Russia, no doubt popular among the D.C. foreign policy interventionists, would greatly increase the stakes of the conflict, making the use of nuclear weapons more likely. Such a policy would neither stop the death and destruction of the war, nor produce a pro-American Madisonian constitutionalist in the Kremlin. History indicates that Putin's successor in this hypothetical would likely be even more ruthless. The cost to achieve such a dubious outcome could become astronomical. The Biden administration's policies have driven Russia into a de facto alliance with China. Because China has not and will not abide by the embargo, Russia has increased its foreign revenues while China benefits from cheaper fuel. Coupled with his intentional depletion of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and support for the left's Green New Deal, Biden has further empowered Russia's energy-dominated economy and Putin's war machine at Americans' expense. Our citizens are also entitled to know how the billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars are being utilized in Ukraine. We cannot prioritize intervention in an escalating foreign war over the defense of our own homeland, especially as tens of thousands of Americans are dying every year from narcotics smuggled across our open border and our weapons arsenals critical for our own security are being rapidly depleted. And so from my perspective, and I imagine much of MAGA's perspective, that is actually a fairly decent answer. Would have looked a lot better a year ago, and DeSantis wasn't saying anything about any of it back then, but he is now making statements on foreign policy, which he has virtually no experience in. Not to say that's disqualifying, but it's not preferable, not in this day and age, not for this moment right now. Donald Trump has been there. Steve Bannon often says, we don't need a president who requires on-the-job training. But DeSantis had to respond if he's going to even pretend to be a serious contender for the GOP nomination. If he plans to run, he has to respond to things like this. And so he has. Was the answer a little milk toast? Yes, but not according to the GOP establishment, who is actually now very upset at Ron DeSantis for not supporting Ukraine hard enough. Now, some of the smarter people in the establishment believe that this was a good statement because he can't just disavow the position of much of the Republican Party that we have no business getting involved in this situation over in Ukraine. But most of the people and entities who are at least ostensibly supporting a Ron DeSantis presidential run want the war in Ukraine and they want to, quote unquote, win the war in Ukraine, whatever that means, since actually winning is impossible. And this is funny for all the people supporting a Ron DeSantis run, 
because Ron DeSantis really is caught between a rock and a hard place. We are told that Donald Trump is the unelectable one, that Republicans will just rally to Ron DeSantis. We don't need to pay attention to that MAGA base, even though that's the vast majority of the party. What we need is the guy that the people in the middle are going to like, that the elitists are going to like, that the establishment is going to be okay with. We need someone who doesn't turn the Democrats off as much as Donald Trump does. And in that way, we can win one of these rigged elections. You see, the regime is going to allow Ron DeSantis to win. And once Ron DeSantis is in there, oh, he's going to take it to the regime then. Well, that's not going to happen. And this is proof of the difficult situation DeSantis finds himself in. He can't reject the needs of the MAGA base because they are an overwhelming majority in the Republican Party. But in catering to them at all, he completely turns off the GOP elites and establishment and conservative incorporated who want Ron DeSantis to be the candidate who can appeal to MAGA, get elected, and then serve the regime. But DeSantis has also run into a bit of a technical problem. This is NBC News today. Ron DeSantis hit with an ethics complaint from Trump Super PAC. Donald Trump's allies are stepping up their battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, formally accusing him of violating state ethics and election laws with his quote unquote shadow presidential campaign. Make America Great Again Incorporated is filing a 15 page complaint Wednesday with the Florida Commission on Ethics, a draft of which was obtained exclusively by NBC News. It asked the commission to probe whether pro DeSantis super PACs, his personally lucrative book tour, and a continued wave of state-level campaign contributions, among other things, are unlawful because they serve his personal political objectives, are in furtherance of his personal financial gain at the expense of Florida taxpayers, and are intended to influence his official decision to resign from office. Since Trump announced in November that he is running for president, he has grown more publicly hostile toward DeSantis, a former political protege now expected to be his chief rival in Republican primaries. That includes branding DeSantis with Trump's trademark nicknames and trying to frame him as a political moderate out of step with the GOP base. But the complaint is the first time Trump supporters have elevated the feud from campaign trail rhetoric to a formal legal fight. Adding this to the list of frivolous and politically motivated attacks, it's inappropriate to use state ethics for partisan purposes, said Taryn Fenske, DeSantis's communications director. And that statement is basically just whining in public. Trump's allies face a tall order in getting the commission to investigate DeSantis, considering he appointed five of the nine members. And you got to love how NBC News just expects political appointees not to do their job and instead simply serve the person who appointed them. This is just considered normal now. Do they have a job? Do they have responsibilities to the citizens of Florida? Yes. Are they going to do that job or are they going to serve the governor who appointed them? Oh, they're going to serve the governor who appointed them. Of course. In theory, if he did face penalties, they could include fines, public censure, ballot disqualification, removal from office, or impeachment. The draft complaint details steps DeSantis has taken in recent months that appear to orchestrate a coming presidential bid. DeSantis is widely expected to run for president, but has not yet formally announced. The complaint alleges, however, 
that he has already checked all the boxes for someone considering a run for the White House, including making stops in early primary states, writing a book, his titled The Courage to Be Free, (laughs) raising tens of millions of dollars to go into a state level committee that could be transferred to a federal super PAC and watching a constellation of supporter-led super PACs and an outside nonprofit group pop up, some with stated intention of getting DeSantis to run for president. The pro-Trump super PAC says those steps, when taken together, violate a handful of Florida laws about officeholders accepting illegal gifts. This letter provides ample evidence to support a finding of probable cause by the Florida Commission on Ethics that Governor DeSantis, in concert with certain associated political committees, political consultants, and a 501c4 organization, has solicited and received millions of dollars worth of illegal gifts in violation of Florida state ethics laws and the Florida Constitution. The draft complaint reads. It is addressed to the chairman of the Ethics Commission, Glenton Gilzian, who DeSantis appointed. DeSantis has repeatedly brushed off questions about whether he is considering a bid for president, and his allies have insisted that he is focused on governing Florida rather than planning a presidential campaign. Trump's team bases its complaint in part on Florida's resign to run law, which requires politicians running for a new office to resign if the term of the two offices will overlap. DeSantis was reelected last year to another four-year term by a near 20-point margin. Florida legislators have changed the law in the past, most notably when former Republican Governor Charlie Crist was on the shortlist to be John McCain's presidential running mate in 2008. The law was changed back in 2018, but Republican legislative leaders have openly discussed changing it again during the current legislative session for a potential DeSantis presidential bid. And so the talk is that the Florida legislature is going to change this law, enabling Ron DeSantis to run for president before their legislative session ends in May. And then at that point, once it's legal for Ron to run, then Ron's going to announce and people around him continue to tell the media that this is what's going to happen. But as always, it's anonymous sources, people familiar with the situation, people familiar with the DeSantis camps thinking, blah, 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 blah. Now, obviously, we don't know which way this is going to go, but it will be hilarious in May if they don't change this law and Ron DeSantis doesn't run and simply endorses Donald Trump. If an individual who is Florida governor is running for president, I think he should be allowed to do it. State Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo, a Republican, told reporters in November. Trump's allies argue that because the law has not yet been changed, any gifts or money accepted to influence his decision to resign from office to run for president are in violation of state law that prevents officeholders from accepting gifts designed to sway an official action. And that actually does make sense. This isn't even just from a pro-Trump anti-DeSantis perspective. And I'm only anti-DeSantis to the extent that he is going to come and challenge Donald Trump. That is a crazy, crazy decision. And there's no Trump supporter in the world who should think that this is okay, by the way. Donald Trump was done a grave injustice. Crimes were committed against this country and against humanity and against all this country's citizens. And there's only one path toward that justice. It is getting justice about the election and many other things. And Donald Trump is the guy to do that. It's not Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis doesn't even talk about the 2020 election. That's shameful. 
If he's doing that as part of some plan for the future, coordinated with Donald Trump, and he is going to come out and be Trump's biggest supporter in the campaign season and then try to take over after Trump leaves in 2028, more power to him. But if he's going to ride a wave of establishment influence and have the primaries rigged in his favor, oh, he's going to go down hard. The ethics complaint specifically notes a new Virginia-based super PAC called Run, Ron, Run, <laughs> which was created by Ken Cuccinelli, a former top official in the Trump administration's Department of Homeland Security. Cuccinelli made that announcement last week. I did not know it was called Run, Ron, Run. America's future is Ron DeSantis, Cuccinelli said in a promotional video announcing the new committee last week. The creation of committees like Cuccinelli's and other super PACs, considered less viable vehicles for pro-DeSantis donors, represents illegal attempts to persuade DeSantis to resign from office, the MAGA Incorporated draft complaint argues. Run, 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 which was, <laughs> which was formed on March 8th, 2023, exists for the sole intent of enticing Governor DeSantis to run for president and exercise his official judgment to submit an irrevocable resignation pursuant to Florida's resign to run law, it says. DeSantis has also raised more than $10 million for a state level political committee called Friends of Ron DeSantis since the beginning of the year. The committee has long been his main fundraising vehicle, and the money can be transferred to a federal super PAC. But Trump's team says that because DeSantis faced term limits, the committee's continued spending represents attempts to boost his presidential aspirations. And again, that makes sense. If he's not going to run for Florida office again, why does he have a state fundraising PAC whose funds can then be transferred to a federal super PAC? While only publicly teasing his private decision to run for president, the draft complaint reads, Friends of Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis's Florida Political Committee, has made Governor DeSantis's intentions clear with a new advertising campaign ostensibly promoting his book, stating, that's just the price you have to pay to be able to save this country. Well, no, the price you have to pay for being able to save this country is supporting Donald Trump. And eventually, everyone who wants to save the country is going to have to pay that price. No one cares whether or not you like Donald Trump, whether you like his voice or the things he says or the mean tweets. No one cares whether or not the news upsets you. And no one cares if you think all of your little problems will be solved by Ron DeSantis. No one cares if Ron DeSantis is going to make you feel a little bit better about the political environment. All that matters is that the job gets done. And there's only one person who can actually be trusted to do that job. It's the person who's already done it. And people can complain all they want about how Trump didn't finish the job. Well, Trump also had the election stolen from him. And so did each and every one of you. And until you actually take that on and understand what that means, there is no going in a different direction. There is no other direction to go in. If you don't care, about the legitimacy of America's elections, then you don't care about saving the country. And if you think that getting a regime approved president in place through rigged elections is going to fix elections rigged for the benefit of the regime, you're absolutely insane. 
So a reminder to paid subscribers, submit your questions for my interview with Garrett Ziegler on Friday. I'm going to be prepping for that interview up until we do it. And it's going to be about three hours that we sit down for on Friday afternoon. So there's not going to be a show on Friday, but I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. 
If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!